The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Voice America welcomes you to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Now, here's the host and CEO of BR Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. Today I have a one-hour show with an old friend of mine that has a lot of history with me, but more history with James Bond, and I want to really welcome Raymond Benson. Raymond, hi. How are you? Cindy Rakowitz, how are you? Really, really good. Let's tell our listeners, my listeners, how we know each other because, you know, everybody always likes to hear the connections. And, you know, everybody knows that I was in charge of all at public relations, at least relating to public relations, marketing, licensing, and the modeling agency. Um, And you and I worked pretty closely together when I was the executive producer for something called the Playboy Expo. Remember that? Absolutely. One of my fondest memories. It was it was a great memory and it took place in nineteen ninety nine and it was actually we took over the entire Pacific Design Center, that monster of a building in the middle of um Los Angeles on Melrose and for anybody that has been to LA and vaguely remember seeing this gigantic blue and green thing that takes up about you know, at least a square mile. You know, at least a square mile. I guess, if if not more, right, Raymond? And it was it was it was big. I just remember it was huge. I mean, really, really huge. And Playboy Enterprises took over the entire Pacific Design Center, and we we built an entire Playboy Expo. It was a World's Fair of Playboy. We brought in Hef's original round bed. And I remember the lines of people that wanted to sit on it and take pictures on it. We actually reconstructed the original fabrics and mattresses from Chicago, shipped it in from the warehouse from Chicago. Um, we had all kinds of um, exhibitions and booths and art and celebrities that were connected to Playboy's history in one way or another, playmates starting from the 1960s when the word playmate was invented, photographers, writers, and I think, Raymond, that's where you came in because there was a lot of, there, there was a lot of chemistry and a lot of affiliations between the history of James Bond and Playboy Enterprises. Am I correct? That's right. In fact, uh, Playboy was the first American periodical to publish Ian Fleming. And that was in the March 1960 issue. Uh, Playboy published uh, a short story by Ian Fleming, and it was such a success that they continued throughout the 60s while Fleming was still alive uh, to do excerpts from his novels as well as short stories. Then once he died, that's when the pictorials from the films started coming in, and that had been a, a mainstay pretty much through the 90s. really was, but when you think about characters like Octopussy, why wouldn't there be? Oh, I know. Yeah, Bond <laughs> I mean, and you know, Playboy you have been of... in bed together for a long time. So <laughs> it's really kind of a very organic connection, I guess. Now, Raymond, how did you get into? We'll talk about your life throughout the whole show, so we're not going to forget anything. And I know that we've discussed some questions, so I don't want you to worry that I might not 
discuss something that's important to you, but how did you get into the whole James Bond thing? Well, it really started when I was nine years old, and uh, my father took me to see uh, Goldfinger at the theater, and um, that just kind of pretty much opened up a whole new fantasy world for me. Uh, I was growing up in a small town in West Texas, and there were only two movie theaters at the time, and Goldfinger was such a new phenomenon as far as motion pictures. Uh, that was really the, the Bond film that, that started it all. I mean, there were two films before that, but Goldfinger was the one that brought the gold in, so to speak, and, and created that whole spy boom that if you were around during the 60s, you'll remember there was all these imitations that came out after that on television as well as the movies like The Man from U.N.C.L.E. and The Avengers and I Spy and Get Smart and the Flint movies and the Modesty Blaze and what have you. But it was Bond that was leading the pack. It was such a big deal. Well, it is a big deal. Look, it's still, like Playboy magazine, it's still evolving, and it still has new Bonds, and you know the ins and outs of who's chosen to be the new James Bond in the big screen. And that's right, it just, that's right. It just goes on and on and on. There's right. different incarnations, but it's always... Uh, really intelligent spy that's really kind of a playboy himself, but figures a way, always figures out a way to, you know, kind of zap the bad guys, right? Well, he's become now an iconic archetypal character in our culture, and, uh, you know, there, there isn't anybody who hasn't heard of James Bond. No, that's exactly right. You know who I think is the most modern James Bond? And, you know, we're talking about different incarnations, and you've talked about all the television shows that sort of followed, you know, the, you know, the ideological hero, okay? Um, do you want to take a guess? Because there's something in the pop culture right now that's a television show that I think is very James Bond, but most people wouldn't maybe make that connection. Hmm. Want to guess? I don't know. Well, Tell how me. about 24? Oh, well, sure, 24, yeah. I mean, Kiefer um, Sutherland, who plays Jack Bauer, I don't, you know, in terms of the ladies' man thing, he's kind of hesitant because he lost his wife and he has some emotional stuff, but in terms of the international plot lines, and maybe it's just not as entertaining because it's pretty intense, but he is the most James Bond, modern James Bond that's not James Bond that I could really think of. Well, I, I, I would certainly agree that uh, 24 owes a lot to James Bond. Okay, I, all right, we could... We <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I think that's really true. I'm just, um, you know, I'm not much of a television watcher, but my husband and I are just so riveted by that. Have you followed 24 at all? You know, I, I watched the first couple of seasons, and, and then I just kind of slacked off, I think, just because I felt like it was just repeating itself over and over. But, no, I, I understand it's it's a lot of people love it, and I have I have utmost respect for the writers and, and Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah, no, that's true. Well, dude, just so you haven't been watching it, the bad guys, the international terrorist guys, have actually invaded the White House through subterranean invasion. <laughs> so it got really pretty intense. So, um, And I think that it's something that James Bond would probably handle if it were, you know, if a movie were to be done or, you know, or some kind of script would have can be thought of about actually the threats to the White House. Really, pretty scary, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it well, really is. But you, listen, you, 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 at nine years old, did you say, or was it five years old? I was nine. Oh, okay, yeah, but, nine but years the, old. You went to your first Bond movie. Yeah, and I started writing, uh, uh, reading the Ian Fleming books, and you know, staying, uh, uh, you know, with the films as they came out, basically becoming one of the big fans. 
then I grew up and became a no- normal person. I went to college. I studied theater and went to New York to uh, uh, work in the off and off off Broadway scene as a stage director. And it was in the early '80s that uh, I was uh, sitting with some friends, and uh, the question came up: What book would you write if you had to write a book? And we went around the circle and. When it came to me, my answer was, well, you know, I think I'd write a, a coffee table book, an, an, a nonfiction encyclopedia about the history of James Bond. And they all went, ooh, you should do that because you know a lot about James Bond. <laughs> and, and I thought about it. You know, at the time, there weren't books like that. Uh, uh, now they're commonplace. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of bu- books like that. But at, in 1981, there was not this tome that would have say, a biography of Ian Fleming and, and analyses of all the books and all the movies that had come out that so far. And so I, uh, I uh, approached a publisher with the idea, and lo and behold, I got the contract. And it, it took me three years to do, and it came out in 1984. It was called The James Bond Bedside Companion. Uh, while I was researching it, I went to England, and I met members of Ian Fleming's family and his business people, and we got along really well. They liked the book when it came out, so we stayed in touch. And, and during the 80s, John Gardner was the, the official author. of the, uh, the, the, the Fleming Estate would hire uh, periodically other authors to continue the books. And uh, in 1995, he, John Gardner decided that he didn't want to do it anymore. He just said, that's it, I'm done. And uh, the Fleming Estate called me out of the blue and said, Raymond, would you like to give it a shot? And there you oh, go. Oh, I did. The rest yeah. is history. I mean, you must have been so happy, though. It was well. It was intimidating. It was scary, and but yeah, it was. It changed my life. It really turned my career around. And that's how you became the official James Bond author in 1996 and between 1996 and 2002. That's right. I did it for seven years. I wrote six original Bond novels and three movie novelizations, the last three Pierce Brosnan movies I turned into books. Wow. Nine-year-old kid goes with his father, gets, you know, enraptured by James Bond, right? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much how it went. And you, you know, never lost your interest. And, you know, God, I mean, you were dealing with serious stuff. I mean, you had to go visit the people from the Fleming Estate. I mean, it's not easy to get the rights to do something like this. No, it's it's. Uh, there's only, what, Five people now that <laughs> that have that distinction, I guess. I mean, it's a it's a it's a very big distinction, yeah. I, you know. And I again, I always think that, you know, when somebody like you, Raymond, you know, goes after a dream or a passion and figures out a way to make it happen, you know, you're sort of an expert in the topic. And there's so many things that are iconic about James Bond. So many things that, you know, there's an idealism that reflects the culture in so many ways and what happens in real life. There's It's fantasy, but there's a lot of real situations that you find in the writing, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I would when I was writing the books, one of the, I guess, perks was that I, could tra- I would travel the world to all the locations that I was writing about because in, in many ways the Bond books are travelogues as well. So, well, of course, uh, it's all over the world. Yeah, so I would walk in Bond's footsteps, so to speak, and sleep in his hotel rooms and eat the food he ate. And uh, I didn't sleep with the women he slept with. But, uh, That's too bad. And you also <laughs> don't have the accent. <laughs> I didn't jump out of planes without a parachute or anything. Uh, I mean, but he always has the British accent. Am I right? 
Well, he is British. Uh, actually, he's half Scottish and uh, half Swiss. Actually, uh, the character is. But he but, sounds. But he always sounded like a Brit. I never. Yeah, I, yeah. I. You know what? That's funny in the way. Well, we'll talk about it more when we get to the next segment. We're having such a good time that we're already up to our first commercial break, okay. Brendan. But let's talk more about the accents and you know more James Bond in a couple of minutes after this commercial break. Raymond, are you having fun? Absolutely. This is great. All right. Stay tuned. Voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of BR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.brpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. BR Public Relations. We do it all. www.brpublicrelations.com. When you think about change in your life, do you think about yourself? How does that translate to growth in your business? The change we want to see in our business starts with ourselves as leaders and the impact we can make. Join host Linnea Hagen on a terrific journey that takes you from motivation to inspiration. Every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time, listen for Abundance Leadership right here on the Voice America Business Network. Abundance Leadership. Grow your business. Grow yourself. Looking for a good time? We've got a show that will give you a wild ride. This show will make you feel good. And it's not even bad for you. You need your time to let loose. It's time for a feel-good party. Pull up to the computer, mix yourself a drink, and turn up the speakers. Happy Hour is here. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, it's called the biggest radio show in the world. Hosted by international personality and pundit, Michael DeMarco. You don't know what's coming next. The biggest radio show in the world on Voice America. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. If you have a question or comment, call in at 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Here's Cindy Rakowitz. We're back with the James Bond expert, Raymond Benson, and we were talking very much about um, the personality in James Bond's background. And, you know, I just learned for the first time that he was actually half Scotch and half Swiss, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But you know what? I, this is, you know, I'm getting very particular now in times of screenwriting and stuff like that, but the characters, 
um, you know, really never seemed, I never seemed to have picked up the Swiss, which sounds very Germanic. Um, It always seemed to be, you know, sort of a Brit kind of accent for the big screen. Well, the films have never really captured, up up until recently, they've never really captured Fleming's character from the literary page. Even Sean Connery, who is really still the iconic James Bond. I was going to say, uh, and probably had a little bit more of that guttural accent. Yeah, well, he he was definitely Scottish. He had the Scottish thing going right, for him. Right, right. But, but it's interesting that each actor has been from a different part of the British Empire. Uh, George Lazenby was from Australia. Roger Moore was English. Uh, Timothy Dalton was from Wales. Uh, and Pierce Brosnan was from Ireland. And then now we have Daniel Craig, who is English. So, um, you know, they've never really emphasized the Swiss part at all. But Daniel Craig is really the closest that we've had to what Fleming has written because Fleming, really, his character was much more of a brooder. He was much more, had a lot more angst. He was very cold, very ruthless, not much of a sense of humor. He was a cold killer, you know. Timothy Dalton kind of came close to this. Uh, I think they were attempting to do what they're doing with Daniel Craig when Timothy Dalton was the, the Bond some reason it didn't fly as well back in 1987, 89. Um, but now with Craig in the role, I think it's it's working. And, uh, yeah, well, obviously it's selling out at the box. You know, it's Bond Bond fans are Bond fans, and huh? you know, you on the most part, men are Bond fans. And if if people don't go to the movies to see it when it first comes out, they'll always get it on DVD or you know, some kind of Internet download, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, um, well, you know, the Bond, you know, as far as fans are concerned, it, the Bond franchise is it's like Star Wars or Star Trek or Buffy or any of those things. I mean, the fan legion is huge, and they're all very opinionated, of course. And uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes I feel like William Shatner when I, you know, talk to Bond fans, you know, it's like, you know, Get a life. <laughs> yeah, no, well, do you go, I'm, I'm sure you, do you do the circuit where the Bond fans go? I mean, do you visit? Absolutely, absolutely. We have, there There are Bond conventions, just like there are everything else, only that, you know, people don't really dress up much. <laughs> I, I, I mean, really, what can they do? I, I mean, yeah. I guess if there were women, they could kind of dress up, but, you know. Well, I went to one in Scotland where people were went in costumes, and, you know, one woman painted herself gold. Yeah, well, that's an obvious one. I, yeah, I would yeah. imagine that, you know. But when you think a lot about of tuxedos, <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. A lot of tuxedos. You always think of him when he's not, you know, when he's not running around, um, you know, chasing the bad guys or whatever. He's always in that tuxedo, you right. know. So that's a part of his, of his character. And um, so, what, what? Um, 007 work, do you still, can we look for it? That's available in the marketplace, Raymond. That. Well, my, my books, um, you know, uh, were published between 1997 and 2002, and uh, a couple, you know, by two years later they were out of print. But right now, uh, there are now uh, a couple of anthologies. One has already come out, it came out right before Christmas, that contains three of my original novels and one short story. It's called the Union Trilogy, and it's in stores now and available from Amazon. And in the summer of 2010, there will be a second anthology called Choice of Weapons, and it will have my other three novels and the rest of the short stories. And uh, an interesting thing about the short stories, uh, one of the, uh, two of them were published in, first in Playboy. And um, 
the one that's in the Union Trilogy out now, Blast from the Past, was my first Bond uh, publication, and it was in the January 97 issue of Playboy. And uh, Playboy had to actually cut some of it for space reasons. They they didn't want to cut it up into two parts. They just wanted one one issue. Um, and so they cut about a third out of it. And in the, the book that you can buy, it's the uncut director's cut, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and the other story I did, in, uh, it was in the 45th anniversary issue of Playboy in January 99. This one, Mr. Hefner commissioned uh, a rather kind of goofy story. He wanted James Bond to come to the Playboy Mansion and meet Hugh Hefner. <laughs> so I said it during the Midsummer Night's Dream pajama party. And, and this was in 99? Uh, the, uh, the story came out in January 99, so I, I researched it <clears throat> uh, by, with my wife and I. We went to the 1998 uh, pajama party, which was the first one they'd had in a long time. That was just after uh, uh, Heff had separated from Kimberly, and, and he was now dating Sandy, Mandy, and... and no, actually, I have Randy. to correct you, my dear, because I'm probably a better Playboy historian than you are, and the Midsummer Dr- Night Dream parties still continued, but perhaps in you know, a less extravagant form. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, when it comes to Playboy history during that time, I'm going to have to correct you. Okay, all right. Um, well, the, you know, but it was the first one where he had kind of come out after the the marriage thing. Right, right. And I was certainly, I was, I was still with Playboy until 2001, so I remember, you know, I was at the Midsummer Night Dream parties, and, um, you know, so I was trying to, Remember, tell me exactly what happened. How did you, you know, were, was there a stunt or did you just write about it? Well, and the, I mean, the story was kind of superficial. Bond is like on, on the trail of a, a Russian spy who is at the party. He's like, uh, I forget if he was a film producer or something. I'm not really sure. But what happens is uh, Bond is ushered into Hef's library and Hef kind of takes the role of Q in it. You know, he, he gives... Bond, a, a gadget. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. And, and then uh, uh, Bond meets real two two real Playboy playmates, and they're the the girls in the in the story. And they happen to be um, uh, Lisa Durgan from July '98. She was the good girl. Right, I do and, remember this now. I needed yeah. to color commentary. Right, and Victoria Zadrock was the bad girl, and she was Miss October '94. Perfect. No, I yeah. do. I, I do indeed remember this now. I yeah, do yeah. Remember this. So I got to know both both ladies, and they're very nice people. And so I was able to write about them and the, their their speech mannerisms and things like that. Uh, and it, you know, it was just great fun. And and every, you know, because Playboy was publishing me and doing excerpts from my books, Hef and I became pretty good friends. And I'm. Privileged and happy to say that you know, anytime I come to LA, I'm I'm able to go to the Playboy Mansion and see Hef, and I've uh, met a lot of great friends there, and it's just uh, uh, it's uh, it's an important part of my life. Well, and as it should be, you know, Bond Playboy, it's um, again, it's uh, it's an organic um, synergy, so it works out really well. Um, you do a lot of other stuff aside from James Bond. I know that we're really concentrating on that for the first part of the first parts of the show. But you have quite the writing career 
going on in your life. I mean, you're a film historian. We won't get into the musician part until later because that will really confuse people. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I've, had a, I've had a long and winding road of a of a career. Lots well, of left no, turns and right sounds, turns. And it sounds like it's uh, it's quite successful. You have a new novel that's coming out now, Dark Side of the Morgue. Your twentieth right. published book. You call it a rock and roll thriller. What is that all about? Okay, well, um, last year uh, I wrote a book called A Hard Day's Death, and it featured a private eye who works in the world of rock and roll music. And he has a rock and roll security firm, and he acts as a private investigator for the for the famous rock stars. And I've skewed the the rock and roll world to be a very dangerous place. You know, there's lots of murders and kidnappings and blackmailing and illegal downloading and uh, <laughs> all this stuff that <laughs> that Spike Berenger has to sort out, you know. So um, I call them rock and roll thrillers. And this is the sequel. It just comes out this week. And it's called Dark Side of the Morgue. Uh, both books are in mass market paperback, so they're easily affordable. Uh, it has lo- they have lots of humor and music references and thrills and chills, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Um, it's just they're just a lot of fun. Your 20th published book, though, that's quite an accomplishment. Well, thank you. Yeah. 20 books, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, are you going to bookstores and doing signings and stuff like that? I am. In fact, this week, uh, this Saturday and Sunday, or, well, Saturday is the big book launch of Dark Side of the Morgue, and it's here in a, a wonderful uh, store in Chicago called Centuries and Sleuth that a lot of the Chicago writers use as their book launch central, and uh, that's in Forest Park. And then I'll be doing some signings at various Barnes and Nobles around, you know, around the, the country and, and stuff. So, um, yeah, I, uh, you, you know, every author these days has to step up to the plate and promote themselves because publishers don't do it much. No, no, they don't. But that started happening a while ago. I can't even yeah. blame that on the economy. It, yeah. um, I think that publishers really saw that, you know, the that paper was a bit more challenging than a lot of other products that are available out there today, and that's because of the wonderful world of the web. And um, paper got very, very, very expensive, and, you know, that writing was on the wall, no pun intended, not not on the page but on the wall, about, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it made it, you know, it it made publishers start to think differently about how they were going to do their business than... Now, of course, there's things like Kindles, which can be the salvation for writers like you, right? Right. Well, I hope so. I hope so. It's so new that it's kind of everybody's kind of watching and seeing to see how it's gonna how it's gonna fly. Because you know there was there were e-books as far back as the very turn of the century. Uh, I did an e-book in 2000. Yeah, it was 2000, uh, and nothing happened with it. It's just nobody was interested at that time. But since then, I think it's it's Hopefully, going to take off more. I hope. I hope it does. Anyway, but the publishing world is constantly changing. It's just uh, uh, something you know. Us, us writers, we're, we're constantly befuddled on, on what to do next. You know? I, I, I know. Well, we could talk more about that. We have to come to the another close of a segment, okay. Raymond, and um, we're going to continue talking about publishing and your music and being a film historian and all of that kind of stuff when we come back from this commercial break. So stand by. Thank you.
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At BR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. BR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of BR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.brpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. BR Public Relations. We do it all. www.brpublicrelations.com. Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Free advice from crisis communications guru Cindy Rakowitz now. Call 866-472-5788. Let's get back to Stars of PR. Here's the host and CEO of BR Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. We're back with James Bond expert Raymond Benson and author and musician and film historian and playboy connoisseur, <laughs> all of those things, has a book that just came out, and it's called Dark Side of the Morgue, and I guess that's a play on Dark Side of the Moon. It is, <laughs> yes, and uh, of course last year's was Hard Day's Death. <laughs> no, I, I, I love it. It's, yeah. uh, it's a lot of fun. So, um, you know, we talked a lot about James Bond, and of course we'll continue to talk about it throughout this segment and the last segment coming up next. Um, let's talk a little bit about you becoming a film historian. Was it Bond that started that all? Well, I've always been interested in, in theater and film. Um, I guess that started as a, uh, when I was a child. I was just fascinated by the movies. and um, I actually studied theater in college and became a stage director. Um, 
I guess, you know, I, I had that choice when, when I got out of high school, you know, do I study theater or do I study film? And I think it was because in high school we didn't have a film department, say, we had, but we did have a drama department, and that's what I was in. And so I, had, uh, I guess it was kind of a natural progression for me to just follow that path. Right. Well, you know, that makes sense. It totally makes sense. But, you know, there are certainly film programs in, at the universities now. Yeah, no, I was talking about high school. Oh, okay. High school, there was no film program. So um, uh, I did go to uh, the University of Texas at Austin and, and major. Great, in- great school. Yeah, great town, too. Um, can I tell, just aside, you know, I'm always extemporaneous, and I, I just have to tell you a funny side story. Since you are a graduate from University of Texas at Austin, I have a daughter who's at Wellesley now, uh-huh. and she's brilliant. I mean, she's at Wellesley, of course she's brilliant, but, um, <laughs> you know, her major is, you know, kind of in the, you know, philosophy and linguistics area, and what she wants to do is preserve ancient books. Okay? I mean, that's what she wants to do. She wants to preserve ancient books, and she's taking Latin and every language you could think of and all of these linguistics and philosophy classes. And when she did her research for grad school, U of T in Austin has the best graduate program for book preservation. Did you know that? I did not know that. That sounds... Well, you know, they do have this great museum, uh... Uh, forget the name of the uh, Humanities Museum of some sort, and they have like papers from uh, Kingsley Amos and uh, Anthony Burgess and uh, all these all, all these writers who have their their works there. You know their their papers and their memoirs and. and well, it's probably connected to yeah, you know. There's yeah. probably some kind of correlation with U of T. And you know, when a Wellesley girl is researching the best programs in the world, and U of T comes up, you know, in Austin, you know, it's kind of an eyebrow raiser. Like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so um, you know, it's very, very likely. I, you know, it's very, very likely that she'll end up down in Texas, and um, you know, who knows what she'll dig and find, and um, you know, it's. It's just kind of an interesting coincidence. And uh, okay, so you and what did you major in? Uh, directing. Uh, that was my emphasis in drama. So I, uh, after college, I moved to New York City and uh, you know beat the pavement there as a as a director, doing the shows off off Broadway and off Broadway. I was also a musician, so I would compose music for theater. I would often work with playwrights and put music to their lyrics when when we were doing musicals. And uh, I quickly, you know, after a few years, it was like kind of beating your head against the wall because there was no money in theater. Right. So I became so I became a writer. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of money in that too, isn't there, Raymond? <laughs> I mean, you know, the life of an artist. So what do you yeah, do to really exactly. make money? That's what I want to know. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, no matter what part of the arts you go into, it's like, oh no, pulling my hair out. But uh, uh, I, you know, I continued to dip my toe in theater, but I started concentrating on writing. And then, right in the mid-80s, my career really made a left turn, and I kind of got in on the ground floor of computer game designing. Well, now that, that's, that's something that could make you money. Well, it did make me money, and uh, for a while it was, it was kind of lucrative. Um, you know, at that time, PCs were just coming into the home, and uh, computer games were very uh, primitive at the time. In fact, the first three games I did had no graphics. They were all text. They were, they were, we called them text adventures in which 
you, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing where you're reading on the screen, you are in a room with a door on the right and a trap door on the floor. What do you do? And you type, <laughs> open, the tra- open the trap door, and then it opens and you walk inside trap door. And then you're in another room, and it describes that. And you, we're basically solving puzzles as you go along, and it tells a story as you go along. And, and that's the object of the game, is to finish the story. Right, uh, right. Well, listen, I mean, look at how the gaming, I mean, you know, online gaming became huge, or game design. I mean, just any kind of video game, quote-unquote, just became huge. Right, right. Um, oh, I, I okay, so now I have for, to get heavy. Uh, you segued into this, not me, but I brought up the how you making money thing, so I guess it's my my fault, right? Um, <laughs> what do you What do you think about all of the violence in games today? And children are using them. I, you know, it kind of, you know, is a little disturbing to me. Um, of course, being the person that you know had to be Playboy's public face, you know, when Hefton's have the time to address the media, and I was always asked the tough questions that Heft didn't want to deal with. Um, I was always asked about sex and children and all of that kind of stuff, and the thing that really was disturbing to me is I always asked the question, where are the parents? You're bringing up things, you're bringing up questions, and you're kind of blaming Playboy for, you know, people who aren't of age and looking at, you know, inappropriate materials. And I think the same thing probably goes for, you know, video games. There's a lot of violence, a lot of violence. But shouldn't be, the parents be kind of like monitoring it and making sure things are age-appropriate? What are your thoughts on that since you've been... Well, sure, well, sure they should be. And, you know, I, had a, I have a son, and uh, he grew up during that whole era of the 90s and uh, when all kinds of video games were coming out. That uh, That's when uh, the violence really started coming out, was in the 90s. Um, and sure, we we carefully kind of watched the kinds of games he was playing. Um, yeah, yeah, the parents do have to have a, a handle on it. But you know, when you when you think about it, you know, there was all, there's always movies and TV and everything. I mean, just you're bombarded pretty much by violence uh, and everything and all the pop pop culture. So uh, I think the the main thing is just. Bringing up, bringing up your child right uh, to know the difference between right and wrong, and and uh, being able to discern when something is just a story and and um, you know an action sequence <laughs> placed within a story and stuff like that. Well, you're so right. I mean, again, I you know this is where I always I'm, I'm a big um, advocate of parents teaching their children. You know, right from wrong, and you know, monitoring what their children are doing, and because being, you know, being attacked because I was the because I'm the image person in most things, right? Um, for you know, not for producing products that might be judged as being morally wrong, has always irked me. Because that's really um, not taking responsibility for your own actions, and I think you agree with me on that one. Yeah, I do. I do. And um, you know, and people have always asked me because my my you know my oldest daughter Melissa sort of grew up with me while I was so involved with Playboy, and they're like, "Wow, you know, how does your child? You know, what do you say to your child?" And I'm like, "Well, I teach my child right from wrong, and I teach her at 
six years old that she shouldn't be posing for Playboy. I mean, what am I supposed to say? <laughs> you know, and I actually had playmates sleep over my house, and they were actually real people. And guess what? Just because Donna Edmondson might have slept over my house when my child was, you know, four years old doesn't mean that she's going to be taking her clothes off now and saying, shoot me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. But in the talking about video games, you've... You have written an award-winning novelization of a popular game, Metal Gear Solid. Yeah, and I think you kind Metal of Gear told Solid. us how you got there. Yeah, that came out last year. Um, Metal Gear Solid is a hugely international popular video game uh, that Konami put out. And uh, uh, by this time, you know, I, I left computer games behind back in the mid-'90s when I was just starting to write the Bond novels. I left that industry and just focused full-time on being a novelist. But um, uh, one of, I guess, uh, one of the perks, I guess, of being a novelist uh, that has done action books and uh, like James Bond is we are sometimes approached to do tie-ins to existing products. Uh, I'm a member of a group called the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers, and we're a, a motley crew of, of writers who specialize in this kind of stuff, uh, where we write TV adaptations or movie novelizations or or video game novelizations. Or uh, and uh, it's a it's we're kind of a small elite group that uh, it's a nice way to make some money as a writer. Oh wow, that's interesting. I didn't even know that existed. But yeah. noveli- it's like a novelization group. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> I mean, but it's good that you're a part of it. I didn't yeah, know it had yeah, existed, it but everything should have a trade, right? R- right. <laughs> we'll uh, talk more about that offline, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe well, I couple... could join. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of years ago, I was asked to write uh, novels based on a video game called Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell. And I wrote the first two books of that series. And then uh, just last year, I did Metal Gear Solid. And sometime in the year, this year, in 2009, I think in the fall... The second book, uh, Metal Gear Solid 2, Sons of Liberty, will come out. Uh, listen, it sounds like a, you know, well, you know what, this addresses a little bit about how um, an artist keeps some cash flow coming in, right? Exactly. Yeah, I we mean, gotta, you know, we've we got to do what we can to put bread on the table. So Absolutely, absolutely. Well, listen, we're at, we're at our last commercial break, and then okay. we're going to have one more segment, and I promise you... We're going to talk about the future and what it holds for Raymond Benson, so stay tuned and we'll have one more segment. Yeah. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn 
saleability into profitability with the help of BR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.brpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. BR Public Relations. We do it all. www.brpublicrelations.com Listen up. Conceive Magazine is now on the air, live, and on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Hosted by Kim Hahn, founder of Conceive Magazine. Conceive On Air offers comfort and emotional support to women contemplating starting or expanding their family by consulting noted professional experts and by sharing the insights and experiences of others. Kim wants to share her experiences to educate and empower women. Conceive On Air is the only complete resource destination that inspires and informs future moms about their fertility on the journey to parenthood. Conceive On Air with Kim Hahn, celebrating the creation of families. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Cindy Rakowitz has won more awards than she can hang on her wall, including three Clios. Call in now at 1-866-472-5788 and you can have one. Okay, maybe not, but she will answer your questions. Back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Well, we're back with Raymond Benson, the James Bond expert and video game designing and novelization expert and film historian and musician and, you know, rock and roll book. <laughs> yeah, I never, Alyssa, I never explained I mean, that God, film historian you are thing. A I got into the fan. computer game thing and I got, got, kind of got, got into that sidetrack there. But uh, uh, you had asked me about being a film historian and kind of like, kind of like Hess, I've just always had a love for uh, movies and old movies and movies of all kinds. And uh, I just took it upon my own, really, to just study film history. And uh, I have like shelves of books. Of, of well, it's uh, you know what, film is fascinating, and you know there aren't many film historians. In fact, my undergraduate degree had an emphasis in film history. It was uh-huh. communications, arts, and sciences, and I actually became a teacher's assistant for introduction to film at Queens College, City University of New York. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I, I could understand how somebody gets hooked. I mean, you go back to the first movies and, you know, you, it's really amazing how things have evolved to where they are today. And, of course, in an introduction to film class, which you know as an academic, I mean, you study things like Odessa, the steps of Odessa. Remember that? Uh-huh. Oh, absolutely. In I fact, mean, and I, you, teach, I teach film history at uh, the College of DuPage, and we watched Battleship Potemkin just a couple of weeks ago. And, well, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and then, of course, there's Slice of Eye, Bunuel Dali. And, we watched that one, too. <laughs> I mean, well, I think that, you know, in, you know, when... When academics create a film program, you know, I, I think that the classics, 
and what to watch when film was made are really the basic steps. It's like yeah. when you learn math, you got to learn, you know, you got to learn basic math before you could go to algebra and exactly. before you can make well, a film, I, you have I, to learn basic filmmaking and a history of filmmaking before you can become, you know, Steven Spielberg. Right. Well, I tell my students who who are all there because they want to be filmmakers. I tell them, "Listen, you have to have a passion." To watch old movies, you have to want to see all this stuff. If you if you don't crave watching movies, you have no business being a filmmaker. You've got you've got to, you know, what a John Ford film I haven't seen. Bring it on! You know, you've got to be that passionate about it, uh, well, or like, you know, you're not going to know what you're doing. Basically. Well, I mean, how can you see the basic functions of filmmaking if you don't watch those? Yeah, I mean, you know, I. You know, even rear view window and watch it. It's the close-ups and it's the dissolves and it's the, you know, it's the point of reference and, you know, again, the step sequence. I mean, how, you know, you look at the steps and then you look at the mother's face and then you see the baby. It, it just kind of, you know, it, it just kind of gives, it's the very, very basic fundamentals of what goes into, you know, a film camera. Right, right. And you, just have, you have to know what's gone before, before you go out and make your own, you know? Exactly. And, then, you know, of course you get some people today who were born as lapware babies and they think they could just kind of create things because you have film pro. And, I, you know, that doesn't create the emotions and the point of view mm-hmm. that we we see so clearly in the films that you and I are discussing. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's just so important. Nosferatu. You yeah. know, I mean, it, you know, God, that was an ugly vampire, wasn't it? But, <laughs> um, but you know, that's the that's you know, horror one on one, isn't it? Right, right. And the cabinet of Dr. Caligari even preceded that. You know, exactly right, exactly yeah. right. But seeing, you know, it, it, so that gives a student the fundamentals of storyboarding. Yeah. And you can't make a movie unless you can't make a movie right unless you have the fundamentals of storyboarding. If you don't know visual storyboarding, how could you write a script? Right, right. <laughs> well, I, you know, besides teaching film history, I also parlay this knowledge into a couple of other projects I do. Uh, the film critic of the Chicago's Daily Herald, his name is Dan Geyer, he and I have formed a little team called Dan and Raymond's Movie Club, uh, and we do live shows a la Siskel and Ebert at area libraries around Chicago, and we present uh, two-hour uh, presentations with film clips and discussions on a particular topic of that night, and we tell a lot of jokes. We're very entertaining, and our our audience is growing and growing, and it's just a lot of fun. And another thing I do is I write for a magazine called Cinema Retro, which uh, came out about four years ago. Uh, it's published out of England, and it's published three times a year. But it uh, concentrates mostly on the films of the '60s and '70s, but not exclusively. Uh, and it's uh, Hef is a big fan of this magazine, by the way. In fact, I interviewed Hef in one of the issues about the movies that Playboy produced in the 70s, like Roman Polanski's Macbeth and uh, The Naked Ape and other other things like that. So he's got a big interview in one of these. Uh, yeah, no, he was very into that. Of course, I have to say that, you know, I'm very impressed that, you know, the that the movie business and Playboy as an icon in modern movies today has really come a long way, you know, with House Bunny and now, right. um, you know, what is, there's a, there's a centerfold in March movie oh, that's right, coming right. out, March what is it called? Yeah, yeah, I forget. I, 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 you know, but it's like, 
I, you know, March. of course, you wouldn't oh, write about March. those for yeah. the retro thing because it's not retro, but God, he has really managed to become popular in the pop culture again today in yeah. modern film releases. Yeah, that's true. You know, and I, and, and I think we have to give a shout-out to Dick Rosenzweig there because he's been working on that for a really long time, so he deserves to have a shout-out in this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now I want to, before we finish the show, I, you know, we discussed a lot of different things and there's something so esoteric here. You have a museum in Japan that's dedicated to your work. What's that? Oh my, uh, my, my final James Bond novel was called The Man with the Red Tattoo. It was published in 2002. It took place in Japan and, uh, a lot of the action took place on an island called Naoshima, which is in the Inland Sea and the government of the prefecture that that island is a part of, prefectures like a state, uh, the government there was so pleased and proud to have their land in uh, my book that they erected this permanent museum on the island of Naoshima uh, that's dedicated to the book. It's called the Man with the Red Tattoo Museum. Well, that's and, amazing. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe you have a museum dedicated <laughs> to your work. I mean, come on. I mean, what else can an artist <laughs> ask for? Well, you know, you walk in and it basically, as you walk through it, it tells the story of the novel. You know, it's all pieces of artwork and sculptures and, and things like that. So it's, uh, that's, I think that's wild. really pretty cool. And you've been there. Oh, yeah. I was, I was there for the opening. And uh, uh, I've been there a couple times. It's, it's, it's a wonderful little island. No, I, I think With that's... Some <laughs> fabulous art museums on there, too. That's, that's very, very cool. Well, listen, I want to congratulate you for all of your accomplishments, Raymond Benson. I mean, you know, from Dark Side of the Morgue, which is available now, and, you know, it's your 20th published book, and, you know, rock and roll thrillers, and, you know, you know well, Hard Day's Death. And let, me, let me mention my website. It's, it's www.raymondbenson.com. Easy to remember. I mean, unbelievable. 1990s, between 1996 and 2002, you know, the official James Bond author and, you know, your James Bond work is still available and you have the museum and you teach film. And we didn't get into the musician thing a lot, but I think we got it because of your artistic, <laughs> you know, off-Broadway stuff. Um, but maybe we could talk about it on another show. And, okay. You know, I, and then again, Metal Gear Solid, I had some of my engineers from this very show say, ha ha, I, I, I play with that game. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, good. you know what, Raymond, congratulations on all of your accomplishments. I hope that you publish a long time into the future, and we thank you so much for being on the show. Hope you've had a good time. Thank you for having me, Cindy. It was really a pleasure. It was nice talking to you again. And, um, you know, I'm sure that I'll run into you one day, maybe at Pacific Design Center for Play yeah. Expo, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm out in L.A. LA you know, at least once or twice a year, so you know, maybe we can get together for a drink or something. We, yes, and we could talk about Nosferatu, but it would be great <laughs> to see you, Raymond. Thank you so okay. much for joining our show. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank 
you for listening to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Please come back next Thursday and every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern for more insider information on the world of public relations with Cindy Rakowitz on Stars of PR. See you next week. I am an American Idol. I got some